If you want to stand for the reading of God's word, we're in John 17, verses 1 through 5, and also verse 24. That's John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, and also verse 24. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. This has been the reading of God's word. May be seated. People love biographies. Uh, People love in-depth stories of great, well-known people. We, we, We like to see... How do, how do they think? What makes them tick? Even if they're not necessarily a, somebody that we would consider a, a good person, if they are a, a great person, they've made a difference, they've made a fortune, they've thought differently than other people around them, but we, we want to know what makes them tick. How do they think? Bless you. What, what makes them different from others? We, we, we want to know that. What makes them different from others? But that, that can be hard to nail down sometimes, can it? Um, because we want to know not just like how did they think, but why did they think the way they think? Well, why do they approach things the way they approach it? I, I particularly, I like to study American history. I, I love uh, presidents and I, I particularly like to study like uh, times of crisis and transition in our country where it could have gone, it, could have, it was like kind of a dark time. It could have gone really bad, but it, it went a different way. I, I've probably read, I don't know, uh, two or three large biographies about both Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt, the Civil War and the Great Depression and World War II. I find those periods fascinating. I, I've read their multiple biographies. I have watched multiple documentaries about them. I've read numerous pieces. I've watched movies. And, and I can tell you, because of that, I can tell you a lot of things about them. I can tell you about Abraham Lincoln. I can tell you about Franklin Roosevelt. I can maybe even in some ways, I can tell you how I, how I think they would respond in certain situations. But, but I still don't think I could tell you what I think, what, what makes them, what made them tick. Like what, what, what motivated them on the deepest level? Oftentimes, particularly those two leaders, but a lot of leaders like that, people who were close to them at the time, even when they interviewed afterwards, they say, I, I don't really know exactly what made Franklin Roosevelt tick. I don't know what made Abraham Lincoln tick, but this is what I saw them do. Because humans can be pretty complicated, can't we? As simple as we might be, we, we're, they can be pretty complicated, but... Today, we have a treasure. We have an incredible treasure because we have a window into the mind of Jesus. In this prayer, 
We have a window into the mind of Jesus. We have a very clear picture of what, of what made him tick, of what, of what motivated him on the deepest level. And that's big because no matter what you personally think about Jesus, uh, and that is very important to you, but no matter what you think about Jesus, uh, he is arbitrarily the most important, the most consequential leader that the world has ever known. He has influenced more people, more nations, more leaders than anybody else in the history. So no matter what you think about him, he's alone, it's important to see what made this guy tick. What made the greatest leader in human history tick? But, but it's, it, that alone would make it important, but you add that to the fact that he wasn't just the most important, the most consequential, consequential leader in the history of the world. He was our Savior and our Lord. He, he was and is the eternal Son of God. And here we see him speaking to his Father, the Almighty God. And that's not only amazingly important, it's incredibly fascinating. We get an inner dialogue into the, we get a picture of the inner dialogue inside the Trinity. Existing before time began, before creation began, and that's a new term to you, is what we call the, what we call the Godhead. That's the God the Father, God the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, yet three. And we get a picture here in this prayer of the inner dialogue inside the Trinity. We get, we get insight into, into Jesus' deepest motivations. Here on this very night, this is what's happening here, we're going to get to in a second, what's happening on this very night where he's going to be betrayed and arrested and ultimately killed. We get an insight into what he's thinking about. We get an insight into what he's, what's motivating him to this moment. Now, now, the setting is important. Let's, let's look at the setting. Earlier this evening, before Jesus gives this prayer, before he prays this prayer, he's shared the Passover meal with his disciples. This is his last Passover meal with them. The Passover meal was the biggest, most important moment in Jewish national yearly annual history. It's when they remembered how God had saved them out of Egypt by causing the angel of death to come and kill the firstborn through everybody who was in Egypt except those who followed God, except his Israelites who had placed the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their house and had eaten the Passover meal together. The angel of death had passed over all those who had done that. It it recalled that moment, this And this night when Jesus does it with them, it's not only his last Passover meal with them. He knows that. They're still catching on to that. It's also the moment where he institutes the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate together. Where he breaks the bread and he takes the cup and he says, this is the, my body which is broken for you. And this is the blood of my covenant which is shed for the remission of your sins. And at that meal, he tells them, he, he told them, hey, one of you are going to betray me. And not only did he do that, but he whispered to, jo- to Judas, who was sitting near him or beside him, and said, go and do what you have to do and do it now. Do it quickly. He knew it was jo- Judas. 
And after Judas left the room, Jesus begins teaching his apostles, teaching his disciples here on this last night that he's going to be with them. He, he communicates to them, this, this is what I want to leave you with on this last night I'm with you. He shares with them what is, what's ultimately going to change whenever he dies. He talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit. He, he promises them he's going to prepare a, a place for them and that they're going to be with him forever. He tells them that joy, his joy, that their joy, will, his joy will be in them and that their joy will be full. He, he tells them to have peace and untroubled hearts. He, he tells them that he's giving them his peace so they can have untroubled hearts. He tells them that they're going to have power in prayer. That when they ask something in his name, it's going to be done for them. He, he tells them to love each other as he has loved them and that through the Holy Spirit, he's going to be with them forever. He will never, ever leave them or forsake them. And, and then he says that those who abide in him will bear much fruit. Now, we aren't told exactly how this went down, whether uh, he does this whole teaching in the upper room with them after dinner or whether he's walking with them part of the way as he's teaching them on the way. At one point, he says, let's rise together. We think he may have said, hey, let's rise, let's leave this room. And on the way, he's talking with them and teaching them. But we know that this was an emotionally charged night for Jesus. We know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus was troubled and he was sorrowful because of what's coming. And when he, when he gets to the garden where he's going to be betrayed, he, he prays again and he prays in agony. There's a certain amount of, of dread on Jesus at this time. Anyone who faces death feels that sort of dread. It's the unknown. But for Jesus, it was something more. Remember, he was the son of God, and through all, all eternity, he has known nothing but union with the Father for all eternity. And yet now he knows as a human, as a human, he's going to experience being cut off from the Father. And he's going to bear the sin, the guilt, the consequences of our sin for all of humanity. God, he, God in human flesh, will bear the wrath of God. So Jesus finishes his teaching, knowing that's what's coming, and he stops, and he prays. And he pours out his heart to the Father in this crucial moment. We have over 20 prayers of Jesus that are recorded. This is by far the longest. And the treasure is that we get to see what moved him, what motivated him at this moment. We're going to spend a number of weeks looking at this prayer. He prays for his disciples. He specifically prays for us. He prays for you and prays for me in this prayer. Isn't that amazing? If you're a believer in Christ, he specifically says that he's praying. He he specifically said he's praying for you. The night that he was betrayed, you know who Jesus prayed for? He prayed for you. But in the 26 verses of this prayer, he only makes one petition. The commentators all agree on that. He makes one, a petition is a request. He, he makes one request. And every other thing that he asks for all falls under this one request. This one request that he prays. The night he's being betrayed. 
He asked the Father for things for the disciples. He asked the Father for things for us. But he makes it clear that all those things lie under this one big request that he has. What's that big request? When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Glorify the son. That word, though, hour, uh, your, your version may say moments, it may say time, that, that my hour, the hour has come. It's important. It's a word that he's been using throughout his ministry to talk about a, a specific time. Uh, you might, it's translated moment or time or hour throughout his ministry. Whenever he talks about his hour or his moment or his time, he says, my moment, my hour, my time has not yet come. There was a, there was throughout Jesus' thinking, his whole ministry, his whole life, there was an hour, there was a moment, there was a time that was coming. And that, that moment, that hour, that time was the reason he had come. I mean, he had things to do along the way. He had ministry to do. He raised the dead and he healed the blind. He cared for those who were sick and, and raised those up. He, he preached the good news. He, he discipled those who were follow after him. He did many things. John says with the, the libraries of the world cannot cover all the things that he did. But the things that he was doing led to a moment, a time that he was leading up to. There was a work he had to do. There was a, a suffering he had to endure. There was a death he had to face. And that moment, that hour, that time had now come. And and what does Jesus think about this moment, this hour? What what does he want the Father to, to do with this hour? This hour that he's been working up to this, this hour that in, a, in some ways he, he dreads and he's in agony and he's sorrowful over. What is his thinking as he heads to the garden where he's going to be betrayed to his death? What was on his mind in his last few moments he has of freedom? What was his great prayer as he was heading to his voluntary submission to a human Trial that was full of injustice. What was the communication between him and the Father before he bears our sins on the cross? Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son. That's what he says. This is amazing. Jesus sees this moment His death, his wrongful death, his betrayal by one of his closest friends and confidants, a wrongful arrest, suffering that he's going to go undergo, trials where false witnesses will be brought against him. Not just a painful death, but for a Jewish man, a cursed death on a tree. You know what he views that as? He views that as the moment where he's going to be glorified by the Father. What what does it mean for Jesus to be 
glorified by the Father in this moment. What is glory? Well, the word there, it it means to be clothed in splendor. Uh, We saw this past year King Charles in Britain get uh, crowned king, right? His coronation. Now, King Charles, but before he was king, when he was prince, and even after he was king, we saw him, he was usually wearing some sort of smart, very conservative British suit. He didn't walk around with a crown, a princely crown or otherwise. He was the prince. And then upon his mother's death, at his mother's death, he became king. They didn't make him king when he was, went through the coronation. He was already king at the moment of her death. Britain never went without a monarch. But what happened at the coronation? What happened at the coronation? They took King Charles, who was normally dressed like a conservative British businessman. They took him in. You know what they did? They clothed him in splendor. He wore a robe and they put a crown. He carried the weird ball and they did the other things to him. He, he walked in front of this music and this weird ceremony, pomp and circumstance. You know what they did? They clothed him in splendor. They showed the glory of the British nation. They showed what it meant. The glory that went along with being king of Britain. He already had that glory. But they showed that glory. They clothed him in splendor. That's what it means to glorify. It means to clothe something in splendor. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily, in this case, it doesn't mean to make something great or glorious. Just like Charles was not made king of England at his coronation, it means to show just how splendid something is. Jesus sees this moment. This is how he sees it. He sees this moment, the cross, as the moment for the Father to show just how glorious Jesus is. And in return, Jesus and the glorious splendor that the Father clothes him with will show just how glorious the Father is. Jesus sees his service He sees his his willing humiliation and death. He sees them, he sees that moment as his glory being shown. When Jesus was derobed and nailed, he was being clothed in splendor. Why? Because he was showing off the glory, the character and nature of God. He was showing the the nature and the glory of the Trinity. God, for all eternity, before that moment, God, before, before that moment, for all eternity, because he is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, for all eternity, has lived in loving union and community with himself, fellowship with himself. He has never been lonely. He has forever known love and fellowship in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you say, Randy, that's hard to follow and understand, yes, I'm preaching it and I don't fully understand it. I understand an nth degree of it. 
But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout all eternity has lived in perfect union and fellowship with himself. He has never been lonely or alone. He has forever only known love and submission and joy in himself. That's all he's known. For all eternity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been glorifying, clothing each other in splendor, magnifying each other, enjoying each other, enjoying his perfections in himself. I don't understand it. But what that means is this, that he did not create the universe out of any sense of lack. He created the universe as an explosion of his fullness. God didn't add to his fullness by creating the universe. He said, I am so in myself, so full of love and joy and fellowship and my, enjoying my perfections. I will create so that they can see and enjoy my beauty and my perfections. So that they can understand and appreciate and taste of my joy and glory. The creation, if you will, the Big Bang that flowed from it was an explosion of the inner joy and fullness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everything that was created, humans especially, because you and I, all human beings were created in the image of God. Human beings were created to experience and to enjoy that love and joy and fullness that God has in himself. That's what you were made for. You were made for unending, never fully explored love and joy by knowing and being known by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's why, by the way, you have an unending appetite Because knowing him in his fullness is never ending because we can never know what is infinite since we are finite. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit pouring the infinite bliss he has known for eternity upon finite beings made in his image. That's so you could know and enjoy him. That's what you were made for. Tim Keller says this about the God of the Bible. He says, because that's how God, the Bible describes God. There is no other religion on the face of the earth that shows a God who is happy and full of love. God has forever been happy, joyous, and full of love in himself. So when Jesus shows up as a helpless baby, when Jesus grows up as a humble peasant, when he heals the hurting, when he serves the lowly, when he forgives the undeserving, he isn't departing from the nature and character of God. He is showing us the nature and character of God. Because God for all eternity has been glorifying and submitting to himself in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in ways that we cannot comprehend. So when he comes and serves and lowers himself. He's just saying, this is what the Father and the Holy Spirit and I have been doing for all eternity. 
And when you have fallen out of that, you are the aberration and I long to bring you back in to what has been eternally true and right. See, we need that because our minds and our understandings have been, have been clouded by sin. Our, our, our understanding has been darkened. The, the glory of God is around us to see, but our minds are darkened to see it. We misinterpret it. It's the sad, tragic result of our fallenness. That we miss the true nature of his splendor. We miss them all together. We just ignore them. Or we misread him. Something bad happens. Something we don't understand happens. Some tragedy occurs. And we, we misread him. Or we blame him for things that we're responsible for. Because we think of him as the same way we think about ourselves. We, we project on him our own self-seeking ways. And then we hate him for what we projected on him. And we distrust him because we know that we can't be trusted. How do we see the glory of God in Jesus Christ? How does this hour that he is facing in this moment, how does this hour that Jesus is entering into clothe him in splendor? How does it magnify what God is like for our darkened minds? How does Jesus, how does his betrayal and arrest and trial and suffering and death, how does it glorify him so that he can glorify the Father? God is glorified in Jesus. When Jesus says, Father, glorify the Son. Glorify your Son so that he can glorify you. He's saying, Father, in my intentional humility, you are glorified. He did not have to humble himself. He didn't have to lower himself. He didn't have to take on human flesh. He didn't have to suffer the, the shame of being a human being, the lowliness. He didn't have to be under, misunderstood. He didn't have to live on the backside of the world where no one cared about what happened. He didn't have to be uh, shamed and distrusted and discarded by his own people. He didn't have to undergo this betrayal. He didn't have to undergo this arrest. He told them, I can call down angels to deliver me right now. But he humbly submitted himself. He intentionally humbled himself. And you know what that does? It glorifies God. It shows the nature and character of God in Christ Jesus. He was glor- God was being glorified in the loving service of the Son. We don't understand how it works, but from what we can a little bit understand, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been loving and serving one another throughout all eternity, and He comes and He does that for us. Not just for finite creatures, but for finite creatures who were fallen and mis- misread Him and distrust Him. Seek other glories. 
but he came and he lovingly served. Do you notice how he, even in his ministry, he's walking around, he's got stuff to do, and a woman touches the hem of his garment, or a man comes and interrupts him and says, you got to come here and do this, and he stops and addresses the woman. He goes with the man. This is the God of eternity, who was on his way somewhere, and had it not only interrupted by a finite, broken, sinful, unclean human being, but said, yet, yeah, I'll stop and talk with you. I'll heal you. I, I honestly, maybe you're not like me, but I can sometimes hate phone calls because I feel this is my sinfulness. Please don't feel any guilt if you ever call me. I feel like whenever you call me, you're saying, Hey, uh, what is most important to me right now needs to be most important to you right now. That person that came to Jesus, hey, and how many of them came? I need you to do this. They said, I'll come. And what motivated him to do that? We know that he looked at upon the crowd, upon the city, and he was moved with compassion for them. Because they, who were going to call for his death, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do you see the glory of God? God was glorified in the willing obedience of the Son. Father, we know he's prayed in just a few minutes after this, Father, let the cup pass, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way? I'm willing, but is there any other way? If there is, he knows there's not. If there is, let it come. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. The willing obedience of the Son to accomplish the will of the Father. Do you see the glory of God in that? God, Jesus Christ, was willingly obedient to God. See his glory. God was glorified in the joyful submission of the Son. We're told that he endured the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. That joy was to glorify the Father and to win many sons and daughters into the family. That joy was for you that he prayed for. I pray for not only for these, but for those who will come after them. But why do we need to see his glory? Did you hear that at the, that verse 24 that I read? This is towards the end of his prayer. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you, that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. He wants us to see his glory. Why do we need to see the glory of God shown in Jesus? Do you know why? Because we have too many things that seem to sparkle brighter than that. 
We have too much fool's gold. Do you remember, maybe you ever went to uh, one of those uh, like mines up in the mountains or somebody gave you a rock and they, you know it's fool's gold. You're a kid. You know it's fool's gold. But you almost want to will that fool's gold into being true gold. I, I think this might, I know they said this is fool's gold, but I don't remember the name of it, but I, I, man, I think this might be the real thing. We do that with lesser glories. We are distracted by other sparkly things. The truth is, because we are made in the image of God, we will worship something. We will worship some things, we will worship ourselves, we will worship somewhere else, but we will find something to ascribe value to, like that fool's gold, that maybe, I know it's not, but maybe it is. I know I've read history, and this, is, this thing has never worked out for anybody ever before, but I think just maybe it might work out for me. We need to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ because we need something to outshine the lesser glories. Because here's what's true, because you and I were made to worship. You and I were made to glorify. You and I were made to enjoy clothing something in splendor. You cannot pry that fool's gold out of our hand. You can only replace it with something different. And most of us spend our lives rock collecting, replacing the fool's gold with another rock, with another rock, with another rock. Anything but turning and beholding the glory that's found in the face of Jesus Christ. And and do you know why? Because that's the scariest thing to behold. It's the most beautiful thing to behold. It is the most captivating thing to behold. But it's the scariest thing to behold because when you see the glory of God shown in the face of Jesus Christ, then you know I cannot give him part of me. He requires all of me. I cannot play on either side of the fence. Whenever I see that glory, I know it requires all of me. So let's look at some other things. Let's play with my rock collection. Let's fondle these other things. Let's behold lesser glittery things instead of the thing, the thing that whenever I see the love and the joyful joyful submission and the humility and the the obedience and the, 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 the joy exploding from inside him and his terrifying love for me. I know I cannot play at this anymore. It requires no, no cords holding me back. It requires me to, to let go of the carabiner and go all out for him. To abandon myself fully to him, my fears, my pains, my pet sin, my pet habits, my way of life, my comfortability, my career, my family. I know he will require it all of me.
Because nothing shines brighter. Nothing is greater. But we'll play around. We need to see the glory of Christ because that is the only way you, if you're here and you're not a believer, that's the only way that you can become a believer. Because we're all clutching whatever it is, your career, your comfortability, your reputation, your sense of decorum, whatever it is for you, you hold on to that thing. And it's only when you see the glory of God shown in the face of Jesus Christ that you can let go of that. You need it as a believer. Because we are constantly entranced and enticed by lesser things. But we're constantly tempted to run up to the edge. We used to have diving boards, kids, before it was against insurance. You remember the first time you got on the diving board? You run up to the edge. Just kidding. No. I got to think about it. And they sort of waffle back and forth between the different edges of the diving board until finally somebody pushes you off. <laughs> because they're waiting. We do that with life as Christians. Oh, we're on the diving board. We know that's where, where I need to go. We know what I need to do, but it's terrifying. How do we see the glory of Jesus? Well, usually he'll, he'll push us a little bit. He'll, he'll dim the lesser glories for us. What used to sparkle for us won't sparkle as much. You find the thing that you've been working for, you fail at it or... You have a growing discontent. You face a disaster. You're, you're down. You failed. Time fails me, but I can share my story. Very short version. I knew I was called to plant a church. We planted the church. It didn't grow like I expected it to grow. And I didn't perform like I expected myself to perform. I had a business and I was embarrassed to tell people I was a pastor. Not because I was embarrassed of the gospel or necessarily embarrassed of the church. I was embarrassed of my own performance. I would tell them, oh, I own a company. That's what I do. When I went full time for the church, then and we were around other pastors. They're going to ask you, tell me about your church. And it just felt like when I'm telling about my church, I'm just telling about your, my failure. This is how... This is how what, what a failure of a person I am. How long have you been at it? How many people? What have you done? And then we got through the pandemic and what little we had seemed to fall apart. What few people we had seemed to be leaving. The people that stuck around didn't seem to be very invested. And all of a sudden... I had to realize, oh, that's fool's gold. You know, the word my in that story, my performance. 
my value. All of a sudden, I didn't know again, who am I? I'm a failure. I haven't met the mark. Once again, something I put my hand to didn't work out. I'm like the opposite of King Midas is everything I touch just turns to poop. I use poop because I'm a church. Until, oh, until. He cut the lights off enough behind me. I had to turn around. He graciously and lovingly cut off the lights behind me. So I didn't have anything else except to turn around on that stinking diving board. I failed. Oh, you're that glorious. You're that glorious so that even if I can't perform, you got me. Even though I couldn't achieve, I have value and worth. Even though I can't get rid of that sin and that habit, you call me your son? And not because you have to, because you want to. Oh, you were, you were obedient and submissive and joyful and loving, not just for the Father, to pull me in what if I jump off into that what if I cut the tethers and pull off the carabiners what what if I take off the life vest all the ways I've been trying to protect myself and I jump in. See, I, I know some of you. I know a lot of you in your stories and your life. And I know that God has more for you. I know he has deeper union and fellowship and communion with him. I know he has power for you to experience. I know he has a purpose for you. I know he has a ministry for you to fulfill. I know he has a place for you. I know he has value for you to understand that you have with him. 
but you're like me and you play around on the diving board because you are entranced by the fool's gold rather than turning around, if I can mix the metaphors together, and jump off and abandon yourself to him radically. That is what he demands and it's what he will accept nothing less. And it's why I'm here preaching to you. That's my role. My role is to preach Christ till he's formed in you. Not so that I form him in you, but to preach Christ so that he takes his word by the power of his spirit and forms Christ in you. Till he closes off for you the the fool's goal, the going backwards, the playing back and forth, and pushes you in to the deep ends to abandon yourself to him. Abandon yourself to him. I don't know what he will do with you. I don't know what he will require of you. But I know that he will require it all. I also know he gives you all of himself. And the intimacy and the communion and the value and purpose that you long for only lies there. Now, I've gone way past my time. But maybe, maybe your hour has come. Maybe your time has come. And you know the Lord is calling you to abandon yourself to him. You can't simply on your own throw it away. You must behold the glory of God shown in Jesus that he replaces it. I pray you look upon him this morning. I pray you behold him. I pray that the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to understand that beauty and glory. And I pray that you turn away from lesser things. That you shut off the light. Maybe you know what that means. Maybe you know it means that I have to actually lay down my pride and come to Christ today. And accept his salvation. I have to admit to people around me, I'm actually not a Christian. I've never experienced the new birth. Why would you hold on to pride about that? When the new birth awaits, awaits you? Maybe you're a Christian, you know, the Lord has been telling me to do this and I've been but trying to do everything I can to stick with him and not do that thing. It might be forgiving someone, it might be sub- submitting yourself to follow him in some type of service or ministry. I don't know what that is. Some of you may know. I think this is your hour. <clears throat> I'm going to pray and leave the rest of the Lord. We're going to celebrate communion together.
if you need to respond to him, I'm not going to prescribe to you what that looks like. But I urge you to respond. Now, Father in heaven, hallow your name among us. Glorify the Son. So that Christ Jesus might be not just a big thing, not just even a pre a prominent thing, but that he would be everything for us. In the name of Christ.